0: Which is true, actually. There are snakes in the barn. Yes, mamushi, which there are a lot of in this area, and reportedly used to be a lot of in this barn. (laughs) There's one... Natsuki's dad's rice fields are across the street, and they call one of them mamushi no sato, like the the origin of the mamushi. And uh, they don't even... um, grow rice in it anymore yeah because they're terrified to go out there yeah and i would used to recommend to people to go to college but i don't know that i recommend that anymore if you're just accruing debt okay uh i got a bunch of kids jump roping out here but uh the mexican jump rope festival Uh, okay, I'll go ahead and start. Uh, welcome to Attica Shrug, the podcast about Southern culture and politics uh, happening this week. Um, with me, as always, are Chad Watson. Howdy. And David Dykes. Hello. And I'm West Cheek, and I'm broadcasting today from a hundred-year-old barn at my wife's family's house in Kagoshima with a bunch of
1: kids jump roping in the, in the field out front. And I'm broadcasting from the attic in Holston Hills.
0: <laughs> um, the coldest house I've ever been in in my life. The yeah. most well air-conditioned house I've ever been in in my life. <laughs> yeah. And that I'm house in, is like a museum. It's just... <laughs>
2: I'm in my usual spot um, uh, in Mexico, sitting in my living room.
0: Nothing uh, exciting. No Mexican Christmas already happened.
2: Well, the first day. There's 12, the mean, first... um <laughs> the 12th <laughs> day is like the 5th or 6th, and that's when the three kings bring all the presents and everything. But I do it pretty traditionally here.
0: Um, ah, okay. Just
2: I have a tree in the background, and uh, my nephew's here visiting, and uh, I gave him some presents. And as the tradition dictates, he didn't give me any. Um,
0: ah, yeah. uh, well, he's a nephew. Yeah, Are nephews said... required to give presents? I don't really know.
2: Well, I, I mean, I think there comes uh, at some point, Uh, You don't, Uh at some point, you either exchange gifts as adults, Uh or you don't. Right. Uh, And he's kind of at the place where uh, we need to make that decision, because he's almost 20.
0: (laughs) Um, Yeah, my nieces are over here, and I alternate between completely adoring them and wanting to fire them into the sun using a catapult. (laughs) <laughs> i'm kind of the jerk uncle i'm like not the cool uncle i'm the uncle who says like stop playing on that it's gonna break it's gonna break why don't you understand it's gonna break how did this mess get back here that you just cleaned up
2: oh yeah i was sorry to say i'm that uncle but i'm not that uncle I'm, <laughs> i have very clear boundaries and um, um, uh, demands but uh, i don't so. stress about things too much
0: well, I wanted to ask you guys. So I was thinking about this. Since we're all teachers and all work at a summer camp, um, I find it really stressful to be – I don't find it stressful to be around kids at all. I love being around kids. I find it hard to be – stressful to be around kids when I'm – like when who's in charge of the kids is not very clearly defined.
2: Yeah, that's totally uh, – it makes me nuts because I'm used to having to be the person who yeah. where the buck stops. And, uh if I don't have the power to um, um, tell the kids to quit doing what they're doing, without drawing the wrath of right their parents, and it kind of sucks.
0: Yeah. Yes, exactly. And their parents aren't over here, so I guess technically we're in charge. But it's like I just I don't want to be the guy like like yelling. But I also you know if I'm going to be that person, then I have to be the
1: person who takes responsibility. Hey guys, here's an alternate activity, and I also don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah, I just spent three days with my brother's kids. Uh, he has seven of them now, uh, seven kids and they have no, they just run wild. And, um, they were making slime on the table and, you know, and it would be, and they would want to constantly put, have things that involve food dye, like on the table of this house that we cannot not stain any of the furniture in. And, uh, oh. and so it's would, like summer camp. And we yeah. would, and we would tell them to stop, and then their dad would come in and say, "Oh, I think it's okay if they do that." And we were like, "No, they can't oh. do that. No, we ca- They can't do that." And then the, they have another uncle there, Uncle Ben. You all know Uncle Ben, who says, "No, they can't." And like we yeah, both uncle saying, ben. yeah. and we're both saying, "No, they can't." And and then they're like, "Oh, whatever," you know. Unc- uncle Ben has a, a long list of things you can't do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I just want—well, um, yeah. I know—I just want them to have some sort of, some sort of, something. At least a bedtime. At least a bedtime before midnight is all <laughs> I require. Yeah,
0: that was me last night, and I finally just gave up and went to bed myself. Yeah. But this is complicated here at Natsuki's family's house because they have a very Japanese house that has like sliding paper doorways everywhere. Yeah. And the kids have decided just to run like 90 miles an hour around the house, jumping off the back of the couch. Yeah. and i've told them a million times you know paper breaks but they don't they don't really care very much
2: how do you replace the paper on a paper doorway is it is it something you do at home or yeah. do you call somebody uh-huh. in. you can do
0: it at home you actually know well you could call someone but you can do it at home you actually you go to the store and get like a section of paper and you get like this kind of glue for it and you um just replace the section it goes back over the over the wood it's not super hard but it's really annoying that someone you know if it just it's one of those things like if it happens for no particular reason it's a really annoying thing to have to go do yeah you don't have to replace the whole door uh, okay. probably that's the nice thing but there's also ones that have very light panes of glass in it right. also yeah i was gonna
2: thing. say so it's not quite as bad as replacing a window but um not no, no. still a pain Still a pain. <laughs> hey.
0: Very nice, very nice. Uh, so, in addition, so someone else has just joined the festivities in the yard out here. Is next door is the head of the volunteer fire department um, lives. Last time we we're here, we all did fireworks, and he set his shirt on fire. That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, in the barn, I'm sitting in. I was telling Chad before we started. Uh, there's this big pile of stuff that looks like dead Christmas trees, but it's what they used to when. This used to be Natsuki's grandparents' land, and they had an old Japanese bathtub where you actually had to light a fire underneath it. It was outdoors, and you lit a fire underneath it. Oh, wait, a random child is walking around with no clothes on in the yard now. Okay, but uh, <laughs> you had to light a fire underneath it, so there's this kind of old trees up here that were used for that. And yesterday, Natsuki told me, like, oh, yeah, that's where they used to find all the mamushi, the really poisonous snakes were in those. <laughs> so I'm sitting, I, I'm, I ran an extension cord out to the barn, and I'm sitting next to the poisonous snake trees.
2: <laughs> these but barns
0: are great though. So all of all of uh, her family's neighbors have these old like hundred or more year old barns. Like this one's for cows, much more for cows. But two properties down, two houses down, there's a huge two story barn that was for military horses.
1: <laughs>
0: and it's really it's really beautiful. It's very nice. Um So I think today This is our end of the year special Maybe We're going to uh, Not finish up But continue talking about The Dolly Parton's America series Is that what we're doing?
2: Yeah, that sounds great
0: And so I listened to most of the rest of it I didn't finish the last two episodes yet But there's enough In most of those two episodes I think To talk about For a while There's a lot of stuff going on in there Yeah Um, So I kind of Was listening to them And writing down notes About what I was thinking about And I some some of the questions uh, here, I'm not. I'm trying to go back and remember exactly what I was thinking. But the first question I wrote down, I'll put to you guys since you're from actually from Appalachia. The first question I wrote down is, "Is Appalachia real?" And I don't remember exactly what I meant by that, but I'm going to ask the question anyway.
1: Hmm. Well, that is a good question. I've heard in other places before how like we didn't. I think there there's a point. I'm trying to remember, like in one of the first episodes. Where she actually mm. refers to it as Appalachia instead of um, Appalachia. Dolly Parton does. I think like I forget the it. H- it's not. Um, yeah, it, it's maybe not the apple. Like she doesn't say Appalachia. She says I forget what it was. Appalachia or apple. Uh, mm, but she doesn't so pronounce. She's a dirty colonizer. It, yeah, she doesn't pronounce it the quote unquote right way. Um, right. <laughs> and and it it came up. I think the Trillbillies were talking about it, and they said. They talked about how like i mean i don't know david like when you were growing up did you grow up in appalachia because like even i grow i don't remember i don't remember i i i mean i knew the appalachian mountains were there but i didn't necessarily know i lived in like a place called appalachia i don't know if that was a i'm trying to remember if that was even a thing that people talked like oh we're from appalachia no like we were just from like the mountains uh, we were from um, east tennessee i, I don't, mean
2: when i was a kid i or, or pretty young i read um our southern highlanders and i read yeah. the foxfire books and uh when i went to my grannies, that's one of the things that made me recognize um how much i was and wasn't what i thought was appalachian at the time was that when i went to stay at granny's farm in the summer people talked different uh um My granny knew the names of all the herbs and all of the flowers and all of the trees and everything out in the woods. And we would go out and wander around in the woods. And there was very much this sense of connecting to something that wasn't the kind of quotidian uh, factory town day-to-day of my life where I was growing up. But I don't think that it was. It was more sort of preciously uh Appalachian but I think that the factory town I woke uh, that I grew up in uh, and woke up in was um I mean I think it was uh, different from other factory towns in a way because I think that it exists but if you look I live or I grew up on Roddy Branch Road and we could say that everybody from there was from there but the people who had inherited farms were from a different Roddy Branch Road from the ones who were from the trailer park that was on the same road. And my experience was different from that. And so I don't know how much saying anybody's from anywhere is a great universal uh, sort of truth about them. But uh, I mean, and I didn't think about it as a kid, especially as Appalachian. But um, that doesn't mean it wasn't. I didn't think about a lot of things when I was a kid.
0: Right. I mean, I think that's why a lot of these are complicated. And if I put my sociologist hat on for a second, that's one of the really hard things about doing any research is you have to draw a boundary around something at some point. And no matter where you draw it, I'm not going to say it's arbitrary because it's not necessarily, but it, it's, there's always problems with it, right? Like... uh in my, in my work that I do, I say that I'm studying this one community, right? But the word community means absolutely nothing if you start exploring it in detail, right? I'm studying an administrative district that was manufactured in 2005 out of smaller administrative districts that couldn't support themselves anymore and were merged into one, right? So, like, right. all these places are kind of official and conceptual and... You know, they're not really things that you can nail down all the time. But I think the thing about kind of maybe an imaginary Appalachia that's interesting to me is it becomes kind of dormant and then resurgent. And it seems like lately people are interested again in the idea of Appalachia. And I'm wondering maybe what, what causes that.
2: I think there's probably a lot of different reasons. One of them is because... As, I mean, I'm going to sound reactionary when I say this. I think, but
0: uh, okay, you're reacting as our,
2: <laughs> as our society becomes more and more fixated on victimhood as status, a lot of uh-huh. white people in the world are looking uh-huh. for ways to um, to define themselves as victims and to latch onto white victimization. And Uh Appalachian people and Irish people are really famous Uh and um, (laughs) uh, distinct people who can say demonstrably that they have suffered at the hands of the larger culture, even though they're white. And I think that that's a really attractive idea to a lot of people who I don't think that they analyze it in that way and say, this is why it's ideal to me. But, um, But they like it. Um, they like to be able to talk about white suffering as a real thing. And finding uh, groups of white people who have suffered a lot is, well, and that you also want
0: to identify with, is kind of hard right. to do. Oh, man, you just went, you, we could stop recording now because you spoiled what was going to be the subtext of this entire episode for me. <laughs> <laughs> Spoil- I mean, I think in general, that, that's, a, that's right. And I think not that there's a right answer, but I think it's a part of it. And I think part of it's also like its class is starting to reinsert itself into like a public dialogue now. It's trying to be a kind of class consciousness. And if people are thinking about their class, then Appalachia becomes a really kind of case study for people or an easy thing to refer back to to say, well, look at how class works. um, And also this doesn't, we don't have to get involved in the the complications of race politics here or even gender politics here. We can just say uh, Appalachia equals white people and see, look, white people are also exploited in these ways, which is true, but it's also not the complete picture,
1: right? Right. Yeah. I mean, and also I think, too, I mean, part of it is like the Internet and like a lot of people have moved mm-hmm. away from Appalachia and then they'll go like, oh, like and also they probably moved into places where they are very alienated and have alienating jobs and don't maybe have, right. you know, they feel, they're looking for, like, they don't, they are missing something in their life, and like, oh, like I remember, you know, it was great growing up in mm-hmm. Tennessee, like, and so. Uh, well, like, that goes all the way back, like, if
2: you look at country music and mountain music and Appalachian music, So much of it is about what have they done to the old home place? Why did they take it down? And I uh, wandered again to my home in the mountains and found that everyone there was a rank stranger to me. Um, About the anxiety about leaving a place and trying to stay connected to it. But it changes too while you're gone and you come back and you don't fit anymore that's a really common theme going all the way back uh, uh, to at least the early 20th century, not just in Appalachia, but there, particularly, I think.
0: Yeah. Well, I talked about that a lot with with Phil Blank and the interview I did with him about you know the origins of bluegrass music being that dissatisfaction and that alienation from where you're from, and kind of it being a larger part of like uh, industrialization and alienation from industrialization. Yeah. Uh, making that, you know, and we. I wanna do a whole episode on it at some point, but you know, one of my favorite books that I've recommended to you, David, is uh Kai Erickson's Everything in Its Path, where he talks about people in Appalachia as being is, Im- is is being emblematic of all of these kind of radical differences in people, of being completely independent people and completely dependent people, and being completely kind of heroes of their own story and at the same time completely in love with their own victimhood, right? And none of those are fake. They're all real. Right. They're just different aspects of people. Right. Yeah. So that brings me to my next question, which sounds more provocative than I mean it to be. But I, I wonder when I read through this, like is Dolly Parton's story as we know it that we hear is her story real? And I don't mean like, is she lying? But like, what, what do I mean, what do you guys make of her kind of like the Dolly story in and of itself?
2: I think it gets hard when you, um, uh, and, uh, and this sounds more critical than I mean it to be, when you turn your biography into a narrative to sell a product or an image, uh, right. I think it gets hard to know even yourself what's real and what isn't. I think Dolly grew up very, very poor, that she suffered, that she had uh, the sorts of kind of tragic stories all around her that um, are typical of of Appalachia and of poor people um, everywhere and that it was incredibly formative to her. But also, you know, she was um, still connected to that by family and everything uh, and still is. But uh, personally, she was kind of out of that by her mid-20s at the latest. She had pretty considerable success. And so she's been going a very, very long time without directly suffering the the sorts of those sorts of things. And so, of course, it's going to get one of the things I've noticed about this uh, podcast about Ollie Parton's America. It's like they sat down at the beginning and decided that they were not going to say the word "camp" because they never talk uh-huh. about camp. And there's nothing campier than Dolly Parton. That's why drag queens right. love her. That's she's, uh, she. She right. fully admits how campy she is. And when you start talking right. about that, it makes things less serious, and it make it. in at its worst, it trivializes things, and it always makes things less serious and less easy to categorize. And I think that part right. of why they do they don't address that in the podcast is because they want to speak categorically about Dolly Parton instead of saying right. she can have some things both ways. And campiness is about doubleness and about uh, exaggerations and uh, strange perspectives. And, mm. um, you know, she's a very campy performer and a lot of, you know, the coat of many colors and all of that sort of stuff, a lot of it is... right very campy and so she's kind of having it both ways as as very real but seen through a lens it exaggerates and uh sort of puts sparkles on everything
1: yeah and and it's like i think um i heard david sedaris uh answer a question like somebody asked him how true like his family stories are and right and he said well they're true enough like um <laughs> right yeah right. so I don't. Know, maybe that's Dolly Parton's story. Maybe it's, it's true enough. Um, well, and
0: if you remember, people got really upset with David Sedaris when they when like somehow he admitted or something came out that his stories aren't 100 percent factual. And it was like, what do you think? I mean, yeah. what what did you think? Did you think everything happened exactly like he tells them in the story? Like that's
1: not what that's not what he does. Yeah. Like, why would you think that? Yeah. And like, yeah, what is it? Yeah, and I guess maybe does it matter. Like if Dolly's story is not, right. well, you know. Right. And I don't even know, like, I don't even mean this in the sense of she's making something
0: up or part of it's not factually accurate. What I mean is like, but there's, there's little parts that leak in there, right? Like, so she was born, she's extremely talented performer, right? right? So as a teenager, even like 13, she's going to Knoxville and recording records and stuff, right? right? And she's uh, kind of leaving the country. And by 18, I think, 18 or right, her, the day after she graduated high school, she's in Nashville. Right, uh, yeah, she left for
1: pretty early on, yeah.
0: Right, she's gone. And so she, she had 18 years of that story, and then after that she has a very, very different story, right? And it, so it's kind of like a thing I have with like a lot of, you know, I really love hip hop music, but there's a lot of people, uh, that's like one of the criticisms of Nas, right? Is that people say, Oh, Nas, you just wrote, you just wrote stories about things you saw while you're looking out of your window. And then his response is kind of, yes, I did. Right. Like I, you know, I yeah. did. So I always think there's that dynamic in any art about the society you grew up in or the area you grew up in is that if you're an artist, in some ways you are outside of it looking at it. And I, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it's a solvable question. I just right. wonder about it when i Even it. if
2: you're still living in the house you grew up in, you're outside of it um, looking in if you're doing it as an artist. And right. also, even if you're living in a different country, uh, maybe in the tropics, um, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean... That you are not suffering the things that your family's suffering, that you're not, you know, your narrative, if you stay connected to your family, which she has very much, right? Um, then their narrative is your narrative to a certain degree. And you do what you can to ameliorate uh, what they have to go through with the, your wealth or uh-huh. your connections or your point of view or whatever. But... Um, uh, you know, if your extended family, and we have pretty vastly extended families in the South, are living yeah. the severe County
0: experience, yeah. then
2: to one degree or another, you're very aware of it at least.
0: Yeah, right, right. Yeah, uh, that's the thing. I don't, I don't think there's any, like, kind of um, obfuscation in it. But I think part of it, too, is that... The approach of doing a podcast or this kind of narrative story is different than the approach of like being an ethnographer or something right like you're i i feel like like you're saying they're kind of accepting a certain story that they want to accept and there's nothing wrong with that because they're a you know a podcast right an entertainment podcast but um there's it doesn't seem like there's any kind of very fundamental questioning of the narrative itself and i don't know that there should be it's just something i think about when i'm listening to it yeah um Yes. So I was gonna ask you guys. Uh,
1: you've been to Dollywood. I've never been to Dollywood. You've been to Dollywood, right? Oh yeah, I've. Yes. Yeah, yeah. it's been a while, but I've been to Dolly. maybe five or six years so, ago we went. It was the last time I took my nieces and nephews
0: there. So have you? You've seen the the recreation of her birthplace? Yeah.
1: Hmm. Yeah,
0: it so is it kind of like is it do they, like they describe it on the podcast or is it
1: it kind of like it is uh the way you describe it. i mean it is kind of the way that you describe it. and you don't like if you're with a bunch of kids who just want to go ride rides like they're not very it's not right. yeah like you they're not it gets passed though it's not a it's not a very popular like destination like maybe for <laughs> the the grown-ups that have like shaken free of the kids are in there but yeah, it's not um I mean it's really neat. It is it's a neat it's a neat part of it and it it sounds it's very much like the way they describe it, but yeah, it's not a very and it's kind of a it's a calm place to go to like in a pretty crazy a pretty uh-huh. because nobody's nobody's in there. Um or relatively. I mean it's relatively less crowded than like the rest of the park. Right. Uh, I've
2: been there but I don't even remember it um um, I've been in a lot of log cabins, you know, like uh, <laughs> growing up right. in Blount County, I used to go up to Cades Cove all the time. It's full of old log cabins on. Uh, I actually spent a fair amount of time when I was a kid in, you know, Appalachian houses with no indoor plumbing. When I would go up and stay at my great-grandfather's, uh, I'd get dropped there sometimes and um, uh, one thing and another. So I, it's all still pretty charming to me i'm not immune to the charms of rustic life or whatever but that's not what i want to do at
1: dollywood i want funnel cakes yeah (laughs) you don't want to go to the the outhouse you don't want to go hang you don't want to have a treatment in the outhouse (laughs) i had
2: such horrifying experiences in the outhouse when i was a kid um i mean not actual horrifying experiences i just was terrified of spiders in the hole Mm -hmm. and um, there was sometimes a snake there it was just a big uh... old black snake but still it was scary this was at um uh, not at my great-grandfather's place um they had uh snakes in the corn crib to keep the rats out yeah,
0: um, The the last outhouse I remember ever being in, I remember opening the door, I think it was summertime, and just like hundreds of flies yeah. being kind of in the hole and flying out at me and being horrified by the outhouse. <laughs> and they stink.
2: Um, up to a point, I mean, I guess it depends on how many people are using them uh, and the time yeah. of year and stuff, but I don't remember summertime. there being much of a smell except for uh, like a little bit of... of uh, fecal stank, but mostly just the <laughs> smell of like wood in the sunshine and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. Well, the church it was the in...
1: the church where I I, we, I went to church uh, through high school had an outhouse, so it was pretty. It could get pretty pretty rank. Wow. In the during Bible wow. school, like during Bible school oh. time. <laughs> no. Yeah.
0: The Baptist the the Baptist church the VBS vacation Bible school uh, outhouse does not sound like the preferable mm-hmm. outhouse. Yeah. to to be using yeah well i guess you know i was listening to it and it's funny like the reaction that the tourist guy was having like oh this is just like the quilt my grandmother made me and this is just like the that and it seems kind of what you're saying david to me is like well two generations ago the the thing being depicted was a pretty normal experience for most americans right right um they spend a lot of time hammering on that it's a one room house. And it's like, I, I get that. But it's also like, you know, I'm now in uh, rural Japan, uh, staying with my wife's middle class family and it's not far removed. You know what I mean? Like we're all sleeping in the same room, you know? Um, yeah. yeah. And that that was experience common to to, I, I would say, most Americans 100 years ago, probably, and to a large maybe majority of, like, people in Japan right now, regardless of economic class, is living in, in one room. So it's interesting that that becomes, like, this kind of central identity. thing. I feel like I'm complaining about the whole thing. I'm not. It's just interesting to me. Like, it becomes a central identity that is one room. When, like, you know, we know that, like, the phenomenon of multiple rooms and houses is a fairly recent one.
2: I think that the... Uh... That Jad Abenrod and the the people who, most of the people who are speaking uh, Uh, about Dolly Parton in the podcast are uh, very, very contemporary middle class people. Yeah, absolutely. uh, It
0: it comes through a lot. Yeah,
2: yeah. And for them, yeah, it's like, uh, um, there's actually an episode where uh, Abenrod talks about how his father has sort of built this wall between him and right the experience um uh, back in uh was it lebanon where is he from
1: i think lebanon, it, yeah, lebanon, lebanon, lebanon. Lebanon. yeah lebanon
2: yeah lebanon is where uh, and it, that it's and that his dad has been uncommunicative about those things so he's discovering it like something new before he
0: discovers right.
2: that he actually does have a connection to it
0: right which is uh making a segue that i wanted to make in a minute before i get I, before i get to that i was you know if we we're going to talk about architecture at some point but you know most houses i guess still most in new orleans traditional new orleans houses don't have hallways or kind of specified rooms right you have kind of like a row of rooms right and so our that's the french way of building houses that period so our house in new orleans for the last Six years is like that. Chad, well, you've both been there. Yeah. We have a front room, a middle room, and then a kitchen and a bathroom, right? And so um, we all sleep in the middle room. Like, our bed's there. The kids' beds are there. We all live in one room and have a living room. And, you know, it, it's funny because every once in a while we'll have some friends over who will actually say, like, oh, wow, kind of how do you guys make this work? And it's like, what? Well, it's not even, like, close to a big deal. Like, this is the way. <laughs> this is the way these houses are built, like, right? It's not... You know if we were in Japan it'd be the same thing it would be we all sleep in one room and have a living room it's pretty normal arrangement for a house anyway but that brings us I think to the segue yeah and what I want to get to is because um it's an interesting part of the podcast for me they go up to the actual Tennessee home right and Jad Abenrod's talking about this kind of experience that he's having this feeling and they had a Kenyan folk singer on who was talking about how uh, Dolly Parton's songs make her think of her home in Kenya, and he talks about how it makes him think of his dad's home in Lebanon and why all these things feel the same. And so I feel like I have kind of an answer about this, but I want to get you guys' opinions on why Why do you think they inspire the same feeling across
1: these white groups? Well, hmm. I mean, I think, you know, like when we, like, I guess it maybe goes back to that sort of like we all like many people move away and they become alienated or maybe they stay and become alienated and they have this like oh well things used to be like even if you live in the same town where you grew up like well but things were simpler back when i was in high school and you know before all this x what before a b and c happened things were better so it's you know you know thinking back to the the old day you know always thinking back to the old days or thinking back to you know respecting the old pe- you know the old folks like the people that came before like i think it might be maybe it's something like that i don't know because i think the kenyan singer like she still lives in like the hometown where she's from like is that correct or is she still i'm trying to remember i think she says her home was in the mountains i'm not sure if that's where okay. she still lives i can't remember okay but, but yeah, but I think it might be it might have something to do with that. It's just we always yearn for a, a simpler time, even when maybe that time wasn't necessarily a simpler time. We always yearn for something the past. Like, I don't know we're Right. Yeah, I well, think we're kind of going in the same direction on this. Sorry,
0: David, go ahead.
2: But there are also both stories about class mobility, about going from uh-huh. uh, the poorer levels of working class to, um, middle class. And there's a kind of estrangement that comes with middle class that yeah, makes it very easy to pine back, uh, the other direction. I don't know if I've told the story before on the podcast, but I've told it a few times in my life about my grandmother asking her. She grew up, uh, her early years, she grew up in a cabin up on the North Carolina side of the Tennessee, North Carolina border in Appalachia and um I asked her I remember asking her if she wanted to take a ride up to the mountains with me and she said I didn't lose nothing up there right she had no nostalgia for it she had no desire to go back to it Uh, my sister would sometimes uh, uh try to get her to eat some beans and cornbread um And she would say, I've eaten my share of beans and cornbread. Uh, When you've lived through it, it's a lot harder to really romanticize it. You might look back at it and have memories attached to it and uh, kind of nostalgia. But you recognize that you're happier where you are. Right. Because you've had both experiences. But if you're the next generation after, it's very easy to romanticize uh, what it's like to live really poor and to work really really hard <clears throat>
0: yeah i so i was thinking about it and i kind of had a, a recent uh psychological breakthrough <laughs> where i was um we talked before we were doing southern bands on here i think we all had rem somewhere in our list right and i for i guess still but maybe for a great period of time in my life rem was the most important band in the universe for me i loved them so much and for years Years and years, I just haven't really been able to listen. Like, I don't sit around and listen to them anymore. And I always thought it's because, oh, because these songs were so important to me. It's such a critical time of my life, and they just mean too much to me, and I can't listen to them, right? But then I was reading something recently about R.E.M., and this is the simplest thing ever. Someone described their music as being maudlin. And I was like, you know what? I never thought, of- yeah, that's what it is. I never thought about it in those terms. And it's not that, all these songs did mean a lot to me and were important, it's not just that. It's that they're a band who wrote like maudlin songs and so they make you feel that way, right? On purpose, right? And and so uh, in particular, I was reading uh, Don't Go Back to Rockville, which is one of my favorite REM songs because it was written by their best member, Mike Mills. Uh, and it's always, oh, I have thought it was like so fraught with meaning and it meant so much to me. It was painful to listen to. And I, I never knew the actual story, which is it's about his like girlfriend he just started dating, wanting to go home to her hometown for the summer, and him being like, during college, and then come back in two months, and him being really like, broken up about it, right? It's not, it's not about anything particular. And she did; she came back after two months. It's like not a big deal. It's just written as a maudlin country song, right? And so country music also... is, yeah. What also he it's a good song.
2: what he meant by it in the moment isn't what it means yeah. to us when we hear it. Like that that little bit of what this song was generated out of doesn't define what the song means to people. And the other thing is that when you're that age, those uh, are the big things. That's you know that they were the age that we were when uh, we were listening to them, even though we're different ages. But um, uh, you know, right. and they were kind of I guess more my age. But if you write that song when you're in your early 20s, early 20 year olds are going to respond to it in a way that um, somebody who's saying, uh, can you go away for the summer? I just need a little space, which happens later in life, uh, (laughs) is not going to respond in the
0: same way. No, absolutely. You're already making the next segue for me. So but yes, (laughs) yes, of course, that's it. Yeah, you're you're way ahead of me today. But of course, that's the thing, like I always goof on Adele because her first album, you know, with all those really powerful songs on it are about like a guy she dated for a few months who then realized he was gay and broke up with her. Right. And it's it's like, oh, yeah, it was a real big deal. But of course, like when you're 16, that's a real big deal. Right. Of course it is. But the point I was getting to is that that, the country music is kind of unapologetically maudlin. Right. It, It is right. And it is happy to be that and fine to be that. And so it seems to me maybe this commonality, and I don't fault Jad Abinrod for searching for this deeper meaning in it, right? But I think the deeper meaning is that Dolly Parton is, works in the genre of country music, which is unapologetically maudlin. And so when she talks about where she comes from, she's pulling those strings, right? Like intentionally as a really competent songwriter is talking about home and family and where she's from in ways that are similar to feelings most people in the world who are who are sentimental or nostalgic in any way shape or form feel about their home right And so it's not that what do rural Tennessee and Lebanon and Kenya share that Dolly Parton has kind of mined into is kind of it's just it's what well done maudlin music can make us feel about like nostalgia, right? Yeah I think. No, I can, I can see that, yeah. I mean, and I don't, I don't know if mine's the right answer, but it's kind of that's where I was going, going with it, right? I mean, that's, I think that's the commonality. And the country music's very good at that. That's one reason that, it's one reason people really like country music, right? Well, a big I mean, part of what she's
2: talking about is, or no, a big part of what he's talking about, what Abenrod is talking about is about the connection between his dad and dolly right and right. that's not based on the music
0: right right
1: right
2: and so yeah that's ba- yeah but yeah i think that it's um uh but i also think that it's not just based on the fact that they were born in houses that uh, bore a passing resemblance to each other
0: <laughs> right but, and I thought, you know, we brief, I don't want to go too much into it. We briefly touched on class. It's also probably because his dad is a prominent surgeon, and so she's comfortable knowing that there's nothing that he wants, he wants from her, right? They can, <laughs> they can speak to each other as class equals and, and be okay with that, right? I imagine yeah. that's part of it. There's very little pressure between them, right?
1: That would makes think. sense, yeah. Yeah, I would um,
0: make sense. I'm skipping over a few notes here, but just because, David, what you said, I, li- I literally have in my notes a few lines down – Literal interpretation of a song, uh, and then Jolene? Question mark Why read the subtext? <laughs> and,
2: uh, you don't have much so of an episode sk- on Jolene if you don't read any subtext, though.
0: So. Maybe okay. not. So, but okay, I'll just go ahead and skip to this one. You had a very good segue to it, which I then talked over, and then we'll just go ahead and skip to it, and we'll get. I'm sure we'll do another episode on the end of this series. We can come back to other stuff. But so I've I've been. Recently, it's been really bothering me, this thing. So, you know, there's different, uh, different kind of websites that that offer interpretations of songs. I think Genius being the, the number one one. I don't yeah. know if you, have you ever looked at Genius before. Like, where I, it goes I might this... have, but I haven't much. People can kind of make notes line by line about, okay, this is what that's referencing. This is what that's about. So it's really helpful sometimes, especially for, I think, hip hop music where someone makes a very obscure reference and I don't get it and I'm curious as to what it's about. Um, there's like a, a Roots song where Black Thought's talking about Ben Banneker Bay at the Al Marocca and I didn't get that reference <laughs> the first time I heard it and it pointed out what it was for. That's great. I've looked at it outside of hip hop and it's mostly horrible because it's people like my favorite example to use is are you familiar with the Jason Isbell song Elephant? Mm. No, it's probably I don't this, think so. one of the saddest yeah, I think... songs ever written. It, it's about it's about um, two possibly alcoholics who know each other from the bar and one of them's dying of cancer and the other one has decided even though they don't have any relationship outside of knowing each other from the bar has decided to kind of take care of her as she dies, right? Uh and, and the chorus of the song is, um, uh, and we try to we try to avoid the elephant somehow. And someone's like notification is the elephant is her cancer that she is dying of. Oh, <laughs> like, oh, oh really? I would have, I would not have figured out in a song called Elephant about a woman dying of cancer that when he sings the chorus, we try to avoid the elephant somehow that that is the cancer that she is dying from. I would not, I'm glad that you have read this into into this for me. And kind of, you know, and so any kind of song like that, that is a really, like Elephant is an amazing song, is great. Uh, But any song that's really well written like that, where someone tries to go and just read it out for you literally, it just seems to be like such a waste of it. It's such a weird way to approach it, right? And there's songs like that. And I kind of felt like sometimes when I was listening to the Jolene, uh, episode it was like I really enjoyed the musicology of it like this is how the scales are getting this yeah, feeling her. and stuff I'm re- I'm really interested in that stuff because even though I'm a musician I don't I never learned music theory and never learned how to read music so I don't get that stuff but like when they're trying to read into the lyrics at some point it was kind of losing me it's like how how much can you dig into to Jolene I don't know that's my opinion I think um,
2: for me my favorite memories around Jolene is um, a friend of the podcast, uh, Jordan, uh, at about age <laughs> nine or 10 in a blonde wig, uh-huh. uh, standing on the quad <laughs> at uh, Warren Wilson, uh, singing yes. it uh, very, yeah. very feelingly. And yeah. there's a kind of, I think that there's something worth talking about and about looking into about the sorts of songs that people respond to so much. And especially, Uh, like, I think that um, gay men love Torch songs, and that's very much a Torch song, just with a twist on it where you're not saying, I want you back. Instead, you're saying, uh, I want you not to take my man. Uh, I think that gay men have a a real uh, connection to that. And usually the campier you are, campier you are, the more you feel that connection and that somebody Uh at age nine or so is doing a drag Uh show uh, with that, uh, 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 Uh you know, an impromptu drag show for friends at summer camp. It's, there's something going on there with the song, but I don't Uh think that you get through it by doing academic analysis of it or by applying queer theory to it, which they did, uh, I think, in the... In the episode
0: So I want to put this out there And I don't know if I am uh, horrible Or this is just my opinion Maybe I'm wrong I thought that the the extra verse That they wrote for Jolene Was god awful
2: Hmm.
0: I'm willing to be wrong about that But I listened to it once And I was like I No this isn't working for me But
1: I don't oh, think I've I thought about
2: the absolute uh, quality of it as a verse. Just that yeah. it takes a song and makes it a completely different song, which seems, uh-huh. I thought she was very gracious about that happening, but I wouldn't uh-huh. feel very good about somebody writing an extra stanza to one of my poems Right or, um, you know, as a kind of thought experiment, which is kind of what yeah. it was. Uh but they right. seem very pleased with themselves about having done that. And also right. without asking yeah. her first or whatever. It just that all felt a little
0: weird to me. The actual quality of weird the verse
2: I don't know. Well,
0: that's what I mean. Like I that's what I mean by that part. Like the quality of the verse I'm not gonna rate her on she's you know whatever but the fact that they were excited about it kind of bothered me a little bit it's like well you know when they first said when she said i kind of read that this is the way i read this i'm like oh that's interesting i don't read it that way but that's an interesting uh take on it but then we're like oh and then she called us back with this verse it's like yeah but it's not okay are you asking me to evaluate this now because it's not a great verse i don't know what to tell you anyway <laughs> um but I mean, I, the the parts that were very interesting to me, though, are about like, you know, about Dolly Parton's qualities as a songwriter, which are immense, which is taking this song and, and making it from not just a breakup song or not just a song about feeling threatened, but saying, like, I completely understand why someone would be interested in you. Uh, but but it's making my life more complicated. So. <laughs> right. And uh i also feel like i feel like i should make a disclaimer because they talk about loretta lynn and fifth city in this uh and i do feel like i should admit that i've always been more of a loretta lynn fan than a dolly parton fan like i've always just like i i feel more for loretta lynn songs and loretta lynn i feel like i identify more with loretta lynn for like whatever for whatever reason probably just because i watched uh Coal miner's daughter a million times growing up. That's probably the only. Yeah. Reason. But, um, so so like when they do the the comparing Fifth City <laughs> to Jolene, you do see the very the very big differences in them. Although you probably shouldn't compare those two, but you do realize when you you listen to people break down Jolene, like what uh, a a really,
1: a really talented songwriter Dolly Parton is. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, the whole, like, it'd be interesting to explore more, yeah, L- Loretta Lynn versus Dolly Parton. Yeah, well, and it's funny, too, because, you know,
0: Loretta Lynn has really shitty politics, like, incredibly shitty politics, yeah. Like, uh, but they're strange, because she's also big pro-union, but mm-hmm. pro-every force that's against the union. I've never quite grasped it, and I think it probably has a lot to do just with you know, kind of how cult cultural influences get weird when class influences also are pulling yeah. in different ways against it. I don't, I don't know. I don't know that I can diagnose her. Uh, but you know, she's been is a huge George H. W. Bush supporter, was a big Carter supporter, and is a big Trump supporter, but is also kind of fiercely pro union, which makes zero sense to me. So,
2: well, part of the way you make sense of that is that her backstory, her origin story, yeah. is about. Being a coal miner's daughter, and so she's going to be true to that story and be on brand. Well, that's true. And she has to be pro union. And it's like you know, we read an article that that talked a little bit about that, and there was a part where uh, a coal mine the the author of the article said a coal miner said to me, Loretta Lynn is pro union, and Dolly is anti union. And I don't right. know that Dolly has ever said anything anti-union. And right. is her park unionized? It's not, I think. But is yeah. Loretta Lynn's branch unionized? I doubt it, seriously. Right. Uh, Loretta Lynn has a park theme park, unionized? too. Yeah. But, it, but because it was quoted as having come from a coal miner, we were supposed to not examine it beyond that. But right. uh, she didn't go on to then write about what Loretta Lynn's actual policy for her employees as union members was she just kind of let it stand and I love Loretta Lynn don't get me wrong um um but but I don't think that it's fair to compare her to Dolly Parton without doing an actual sort of breakdown kind of comparison right and say that Dolly Parton comes up short
1: right sure Well, in Loretta Lynn's defense, I mean, Donald Trump did say he was having people look into finding new ways to use coal, so. (laughs) Um,
0: Yeah. So. Yeah. And and he's running on a platform of getting a dude to stop growling like an old bar. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Folks. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, more and more people Uh, are talking
0: about it. More and more people are talking about do, out, like an old bar.
1: My know. dad had a
2: story about meeting uh, Loretta Lynn. Uh, he was interviewing her for the uh, Knoxville newspaper. And he caught her after the show and asked if he could um, uh, interview her. And she said, oh, honey, I'm so tired. I don't know if I can do that, but you can walk with me. And she had played the Coliseum, and the uh, Hyatt was the best hotel in town at the time, and it was up the hill from there. And she just walked out of the back of the Coliseum and trudged up the hill to go to her hotel instead of getting <laughs> scooped up and driven up or whatever. Right. And my dad walked up the hill with her and did his interview as they were uh, trying to make it up a very steep grassy hill to uh, uh, the <laughs> hotel, and that was always really endearing me and made me think um that she probably didn't get so far from or hasn't gotten so far from where she was from
0: yeah that's kind of the, the stuff i respond to with her as well but again it's probably based mostly on watching the movie um so with that's really quickly as we're coming to the end of this episode we can dive into more into dolly parton in the new year but there's an interesting thing for me because they talk a lot about her politics or her reluctance for politics. and we talked about that on the last episode. There's an interesting moment for me where she was kind of saying refusing to comment on anything having to do with Donald Trump, but then she seemed to get there's a small child climbing into the climbing <laughs> into the barn with me now, and I don't know who it is, but I'll, I'll tell them there's snakes up here he gets up here so konnichiwa. <laughs> so there's um there's an interesting moment where she does sound very upset about uh christians who are anti-lgbtq and she actually says i hate christians who are that way and seems kind of incensed about it um it seemed like an interesting moment to me that she she kind of drew that
1: line
2: i think she draws the line over and over again about people who yeah Actively, sort of cruelly mistreat other people in a way that you can't ignore. Um, Right. And also, if she's talking about a category of people rather than personally Uh attacking one person's uh, behavior. Right. Right. And I think that that's a whole ethic and a whole cultural thing. Yeah. um, That um, there's a lot of people who won't speak badly of individuals. Right. Uh, And I, I, I won't say that it's um, uh, strictly country or strictly uh, southern or anything else because it's obviously not but uh, yeah yeah, I think last time I said uh, that scolding and preaching at people isn't the same thing as having good politics and I think if you look at the content of what she says in her songs and what she says when she does make statements on generalities like how should gay people be treated how should women be treated um her relationships with, uh, minorities of all
0: sorts and across
2: classes that she's pretty solid.
0: No, I think that's true. I think that's true from everything I've seen. Right. It seems to be that way to me. Um, yeah. And also I think ask, you know, we can go around and around about it, but asking people from certain backgrounds or from certain generations to be, um, absolutely correct on the way you want them to talk about issues is I think always going to be a losing battle, right? It's just, you're not going to, you're not going to win on it. Um, and I don't even know if you, if you should, right? Like, uh, you know, it reminds me, I, I think about kind of people from my grandparents' generation who, even though I know they thought certain things politically are, and they could be bitingly critical of certain people they really always cautioned against saying openly that you like dislike people, or that my grandmother was always big on saying yeah. you can't say that you hate people. Don't say that. You don't say that you hate people. And even um, with politicians that she didn't support or wouldn't vote for, she really hated them being criticized like publicly. It didn't. She wasn't. Didn't think that was the correct way to, to do things. Um, and an uh, interesting point I feel, I feel really bad I forgot his name the banjo player that they have or the musician who is uh, openly gay bluegrass musician from a very conservative family um, uh, I believe it was I believe he made the point and I thought it was really interesting that we don't think about 35 percent of the LGBTQ community is located in the southeast which isn't surprising to me at all I don't think it's surprising to us right as a group no, I don't think it is not. but you know no so you're saying but 30% the, like 1 in 3 I believe that's a stat they give on here I would like to look into it but 35% of LGBTQ people are located in the southeast yes yes I was just
2: making a joke yeah. about the fact that of the oh, yeah. um, of the panel 30% is uh, oh, 33% I, I, is gay hey, from the south hey, <laughs> that's statist-
0: that's statistics yeah. we just did statistics that's what I'm talking Dad. about yeah yeah uh yeah, call. I, I just got his name. I was trying to think of uh,
1: the five thirty eight dude. I almost called him Neil Blender. A <laughs> skater. I don't think it's Neil Blender. <laughs> you know, Blenders. call Neil Blender. Yeah, Neil Blender's. Like oh no, now now you made me forget his name. Um, yeah,
0: well, why not? It's not Neil yeah. Diamond. It's not Neil Blender. Yeah. Um, it's Ned Ned Snortle. Nate Nate Silvers. Nate Silver. Nate Silver, not Neil Blender. Uh, <laughs> Neil <laughs> Blender. Although although if you're hearing Neil Blender's name for the first time, look up his skating videos. I didn't skate, but Neil Blender was my favorite skateboarder. Uh, anyway okay um uh, yeah so call nate silver on it but yeah so it i don't think it changes how any of us the three of us think of the south but it is interesting to think that people outside of the south are listening to this and maybe thinking oh wow that that is true if 35 percent of lgbtq people do live in the southeast
2: is it justin hiltner
0: hmm. no it's neil
1: blender i'm pretty sure it's neil blender oh, is oh the okay. banjo player
0: i hope so i hope that's it i liked his singing and playing
1: yeah i do yeah i I don't remember. I can't. I'm not. Good. I feel
0: bad talking about him as saying identifying him by his identity and not knowing his name. I feel bad about that. But yeah. I, I thought it was an interesting point, And I thought, you know, if one thing that we are trying to accomplish is having people like look at the South as we actually understand it, that was a good, good statistic to take in. Uh, and I also recently saw it with, um, I was talking about this on Twitter, but someone had posted uh, a sign that they saw in rural Maryland with saying, um, what What? something about like we shoot liberals. something threatening liberals with violence and i was trying to again explain to people on twitter that a lot of people who are from areas that you think of as conservative uh relocate because of things outside of just their personal choice about where to live right so excoriating rural areas for being bad isn't always taking into account that people are, are that cities are like this and rural areas are like this? Aren't actually looking into the dynamics of why maybe people
1: leave some places and move to other places. Anyway, I think it was because of my jokes about country people drive like this and city people drive like this. I th- I think it was. <laughs> yeah. Country people are all like that. <laughs> country people drive like this.
0: City people drive like this. Well, in my last few days in the Japanese countryside, I can tell you, country people in Japan drive like this. Uh, I see my friend out in the field. I'm an <laughs> 80-year-old guy. I might as well park the car in the middle of the road, get out, go walk out into the field and have a conversation with him. And whatever happens in the road, I guess that's their fault for driving. Yeah. It's weird. We've talked about this before uh, and we'll conclude. But how much just uh, what we talk about as maybe being the south is like the country in a lot of places in the world because so far i've been in japan i've been in kagoshima for two days we've already had one neighbor bring over homemade soba noodles that they had just made we've had uh somebody drop off a bunch of oranges and apples Um, someone said as a joke we should go to the neighbors and ask if they had any cans of tuna so my kid ran over and did and they gave us cans of tuna then we felt bad about it so we put together a bunch of apples and oranges and took them next door and gave them to her for accidentally taking her tuna Uh, now we're talking about (laughs) which radishes to pull out of the garden for tomorrow so Uh. Mm -hmm. right, Um, I want to do a quick
2: plug for we were uh, uh, talking about um, gay people in the South. I want to do a quick plug for a yeah. movie that is called yeah. Small Town Gay Bar. Star
0: Wars. Small Town Gay Bar.
2: And it's a documentary. And it's just about that. It's about, I think it's three different, maybe more, but like three different small town gay bars in the South. <laughs> and it's an eye-opener, I think, for a lot of people about...
0: Um, is it a documentary? Sh- uh, yes. Oh, wow. I'd
2: love to see this. Where uh, could, you should check it? it out. It's, it's really... Interesting. Maybe we can talk about it sometime, um because it's oh, very so. where, it's where very much it? about um about working-class gay people in the South. Cool. Where can one find this movie? Oh, that I'm not sure. I can't even remember where I first saw it, but uh um, let me look while we wrap up here.
0: Okay. Make sure to wrap it up everybody. You heard it from David. Yeah. Well, you said but that we were wrapping up. Wrap up. I'm Peace. just taking it from you. Yeah. No, no, no! I'm just telling everyone in general. Yeah, listeners, oh. listeners, you
1: don't have to go home, <laughs> but you can't stay here.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm making a prophylactic joke, guys. Come
0: on, work with me.
1: Oh, rapid. Okay, yeah,
0: yes.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I thought we practiced. I thought
1: we were uh, pro abstinence. I, th- I thought I thought it was our uh... abstinence only. Yeah, abstinence only. Yeah. Uh-huh. We're an absence-only podcast. Absence-only. We're absence-only podcast. Absence-only.
0: No, I don't live in New Orleans anymore. But if you want an absence-only, Pete um, uh, appeal, then I can. Sh- uh, you can listen to the kids running around the yard right now. That's good <laughs> yeah. Well,
2: uh, after... Kevin Smith was one of the producers on it. Actually. Hmm. Oh, really?
0: So Kevin, uh-huh. It's funny how often Kevin Smith ends up being the good guy in a lot of stories yeah like i heard also that he uh all of his royalty checks from the movies that the weinstein produces go to uh, like women's shelters now oh i didn't i had no idea that's very cool
2: yeah he's actually like a decent guy this might at some point it was on netflix i don't know if it's still uh, there or not And I think that at least parts of it
0: are on YouTube. Okay. I I can edit this to make this more coherent. Uh, This week I went on Netflix and I forgot that I left my VPN on and it was like entering the Matrix. (laughs) (laughs) It's crazy. Depending on like what random place your VPN picks, you get a completely different Netflix.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I I should try VPNing somewhere else. I always just do either Mexico or the U S because that's where I am. But
0: yeah, I was trying to do Christmas movies from Japan and I couldn't find the Grinch. I'm like, I know the Grinch is on Netflix. And then I left my VPN on from doing something else for America. And it's like, all of a sudden there was 10 billion Christmas movies on Netflix, including the Grinch. (laughs) Okay. So we will wrap it up. Our last broadcast of the year, I think, unless we decide to do an emergency into the decade broadcast. I don't know. Uh, Sitting around here. So, uh, thank you guys, and I'll see you next year. Uh, yeah, next year in
2: Jerusalem. (laughs) um, (laughs) um,
1: (laughs) (laughs) Happy
2: New Year.